Hello and welcome to another ICAEW Insights podcast with news and analysis from the world of accountancy, business and finance. I'm Philippa Lamb. Today, we're looking at the statistics behind the government's levelling up agenda with Ed Humpherson, who leads the Office for Statistics Regulation. And we'll be discussing the pros and cons of a more devolved tax system with the ICAEW's own Head of Taxation Strategy, Frank Haskew. Now, the levelling up agenda is all about changing Britain's economic geography and narrowing inequality between the regions. These are substantial tasks involving huge infrastructure projects and changes to everything from taxation to regional funding. So to grasp what needs to be done, we need a comprehensive understanding of our demography and where those imbalances currently exist. But where does that data come from and how do we know it's sufficiently robust? Ed Humperson is with me. As I mentioned, he's head of the Office for Statistics Regulation and he's here to discuss the importance of good data in moving that levelling up agenda forward and how statistics can be used to measure progress. Now, for those who aren't familiar with the Office for Statistics Regulation, can you just give us an idea of exactly what the OSR does? So we are the UK's standard setter for all government statistics and data. What we do is we uh, set the standards that uh, any government department must meet when they publish statistics on anything. It could be uh, crime or health or the economy or housing. All human life is there in the in the work that we cover. And we check that they uphold those standards. We do various things, including most well-known thing is we step in where statistics are misused right up to the Prime Minister. We will be willing to step in and um, highlight misuses of statistics. Now, as I said, levelling up is all about doing away with historic economic disparities right across the UK. So what does existing government data tell us about those imbalances? The imbalances are really striking, really significant. I've got a few examples here just to illustrate how significant they are. At the regional level, uh, you, sh- you see that London and the South East have the highest GDP per head and quite a lot above the other regions uh, of the UK. But more striking is below that. So I'm uh, sitting here in Camden now. Um, since 2004, productivity per working hour in Camden has gone up by 42%. In Merseyside, in Sefton, it's actually fallen by 13%. So a huge widening of a gap there. Uh, GDP up in Camden over 200% since 1998. In the Midlands, places like Dudley and Wolverhampton, only up by 65%. So you see not only gaps, but widening gaps. And indeed, uh, it's not just those economic numbers, it's also health numbers. I, I always think the most striking and perhaps depressing imbalance is uh, healthy life expectancy, how long somebody can expect to live disability free. In Camden, the average male can expect to live to be 65. In Hull, it's 53. So 12 years less healthy life. A really, really striking imbalance. That's a huge gap, isn't it? It's a huge gap, yeah. Well, obviously, this data, I mean, it's only useful if it's good data. So how do you go about monitoring government data to assess its quality? Well, we, we have a framework which we call TQV, trustworthiness, quality and value. And the starting point of that is to say that it's not just the quality of the data that matters. It's how trustworthy it is, whether it's being produced by people who are free from political spin, political interference, and whether it's valuable to the public. And the reason that point is so important is that 
I think it's very easy to imagine that data just go into some kind of, you know, darkened room in Whitehall and senior decision makers, civil servants and ministers kind of look at the numbers and come up with clever policies. But of course, that's a really elitist way of thinking about data. Really, data are collected from society and should be available to everyone in society to understand. So we also look at that accessibility and that insight available to the whole public. So we check all of those things. We check trustworthiness, uh, you know, who's deciding what numbers are collected and how, quality, what the numbers actually are, whether they're reliable, where they're from, the methods used, uh, and then also this point about value, how accessible are they? Do they provide, do they, you know, in a way, do they answer the questions that that people want to have answered, um, like how much uh, imbalance is there in the UK. Okay, so obviously you introduced a lot of rigour into that checking process. But what happens if you're not happy with a particular study or, or data set? Well, what we do is we make a noise about it. We publish a report. We will write publicly to the department and we will be very clear that we expect improvements. If they don't comply with our requirements they will lose, their statistics will lose the status of being a, a, an accredited statistic. So we can strip them of, of their accreditation and that signals to everyone, uh, the government itself, but also to all the users, it, it signals that the numbers have not met the high standards that I've just outlined. Okay, so you have real organisational teeth then? Uh, we, well, certainly we do. And what we find is that we're effective in getting government departments to improve their data collections. Data collection, is, it's never still, you know, the society is always changing. So the statistics need to evolve and adapt. And what we find is that when we step in, we say something needs to be improved here. Uh, we are listened to. Where are the biggest data gaps and challenges that you see when it comes to levelling up? Well, I think there's four successive issues to address, and I'll, I'll go through them in turn. The first and the most important one, like the home base, if you like, is quality. A lot of the regional statistics that we have, particularly the economic statistics, are not kind of directly observed. They're not collected from observations. They're modelled. What the Office for National Statistics do, will they'll build a model and we say, this is what we think is happening for example, for regional uh, GDP. And the trouble with that is that it's not very good if there's a shock, if there's a, a particular area that starts to really struggle or indeed surge away, the model won't be picking it up. So really addressing that by using more data sources, tax data, which tells you about business activity in a local area, or company's house data, using that much more is a really important first step in quality. Then once you've got that, if you want to think about levelling up, you're really thinking about bringing together lots of data about people and lots of data about you know spaces, spatial economic data. And whilst we have good granular data on people, you know, health and education and so on, we have reasonable spatial economic data. It's quite hard to find a place where it all comes together or a place to say, this is what that place is like, because you can look in one source and look at all of these things side by side. So bringing together is the next thing. Even when you've done all that, you've got the quality sorted, you've brought the data together so you can look at a place, there are gaps. And I think the most significant is a lot of levelling up is about pride in place. It's about people feeling that where they live and where, where they're from is worthwhile. Uh, it's 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 got a, you know a good community and so on. That's really really hard to measure. And I actually yeah. suspect that 
what um, government is going to need to do is to go outside the official data system and use things from civil society, uh, you know, things which are more bottom up, surveys or, or locally generated data to get much more of an insight into, you know, what, beyond all the numbers, what is a place really like and how is it really doing and how do the people who live there really feel? It's a little bit, you know, a little bit like the ghost in the machine, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I, I do. Do you want to give us more on those gaps and challenges? Yeah, well, the uh, the really interesting development in in data collection over the last I don't know uh, decade has been this interest in well being. So instead of just collecting you know numbers on uh, you know the size of the economy and how many people are in employment, you go and ask people about how they feel about their life. Um, and typically, it's it's based on four questions about how happy people are and how satisfied they are with their life and and, and things like that. And that produces really, really interesting insights, like actually some of the areas which are, are wealthier, some of the areas like Camden and Islington, um, don't do so well on well-being. And some of the more rural areas where incomes are, are, are less high do really well. And again, this is an issue where, where there's a sort of a gap between that well-being insight, which gives you some sense of how people feel about their lives and where they live, and the kind of harder numbers and i think what we need is to close that gap if we really want to understand how to level up in a way that makes place a meaningful thing about in people's lives and and and, and that's something they can feel proud of understanding these relationships between well-being and employment and well-being and uh, health and well-being and crime and well-being and education all of those things really really important it's a bit of a frontier i think is there a tension between those different sorts of data? I mean, on the one hand, you've got hard statistical data. On the other, you've got self-reported data about how people are feeling. I mean, is there a difficulty in trying to combine those into really solid insights? Well, that's what makes it interesting. Uh, I don't think it's it's not something where you can just simply write a formula and plug the numbers in and out pops, you know, this is, this is your answer. It's much more um, subtle. But I do think that if you drill down into both sets, you know, the harder numbers that we've just been talking about, and then these well-being numbers, you can start to see causal patterns and, and relationships between things, like how people's health affects how uh, they feel about their lives and, and things like that. Uh, but it's not easy. And it's certainly not something you can do sort of, you know, in a very kind of glib way and just say, you know, I'll plug this number into my spreadsheet and out will come this kind of answer. It's much more um, complex and subtle than that. And I think we're at the foothills of understanding it. And I think that's really where understanding levelling up needs to go is to understand this kind of community well-being issue. So the skills in the analysis as much as, as the collection. Absolutely. Absolutely right. And, and the inferences and, and where you get those inferences from and how you connect things up. Exactly right, Philippa. Exactly right. Looking ahead, how are you going to be monitoring and measuring all the data that's going to emerge from this levelling up strategy? It's a 10-year plan. It's going to be vitally important, isn't it, to have an accurate picture of progress over time? I think a really bad outcome from all of this in terms of of statistics and data would be for this process of measuring progress against levelling up to be a whitehall activity for all the all of the data and statistics to be funneled up into at the end of 10 years for the civil servants to emerge blinking into the light and to say we can we can now tell you that we have successfully leveled up i think that would actually happen uh, exactly i think i think in a way that would be the, the antithesis of the whole project the whole project is about saying we're too centralized 
in the UK. And one of the manifestations of that centralization is in really, these really huge imbalances. So what I'm going to be really looking for is that at every step along the way, the statistics and the data are not just hoarded centrally, but they're made available publicly in ways that are meaningful to those local communities and, and the people in them as things are changing. And you might think that's a bit of a kind of dreamy fantasy of a, of a you know data lover that I am, but we've just been through a pandemic where exactly that has happened, where exactly this process of making data available on a daily basis to millions of people, people have engaged with it, they have wanted to know. Yeah because it's been easy for them to engage with. So that's what I'm going to be really looking for. And as we start to tease out these interesting relationships between um, how people feel and the kind of material dynamics of a place, as we tease that out, I think taking people on that journey, I can't believe I've just said journey. My staff are banned from using the journey word, never mind just using it in a podcast. Absolutely shocking. But on on that process, on that process, yeah, I, I think that's what we'll be looking for. And are you expecting to get buy-in on that hope from Whitehall, from government? I mean, do you think they're going to be as keen to be open as you would want them to be? Well, right now, the signs are really good, that's for sure. So you're really seeing the Department for Leveling Up has set up a new spatial analysis unit and it's very keen on open data and, and making things accessible. I think the test comes not when you set out, but further along, as maybe things start to get harder or political interest moves on, is that same commitment to openness still maintained? That's what we'll be looking for. But right now, the signs are good. Thanks very much, Ed. Really great to have you with us. Thanks for joining. OK, let's turn to the tax implications now, because one of the big levelling up questions is whether to further devolve taxes, both between nations and at a regional level. This could give regions more autonomy and it would help address funding gaps that have caused problems in recent years. But it could also add more cost and complexity to the tax system. So let's look at those pros and cons in more detail with ICAEW's Head of Taxation Strategy, Frank Haskew. Hello, Frank. Thanks for being with us. Hello there. So tell me, Frank, what do you feel are the big benefits and risks around further devolution of taxes generally? That's a very good question, Philippa, and a very opportune time for considering it because um, there's quite a lot of change currently um, in the pipeline with things like the levelling up bill and also the recent publication of an independent fiscal commission report into further devolution of taxes in Northern Ireland, which is a very lengthy and um, well-considered report which actually sets out a lot of the risks and rewards of um, tax devolution. In, in fact, the chair of that was um, Paul Johnson of the IFS, and it's, it's extremely well considered uh, and is certainly well worth a read. But, I mean, in a nutshell, the advantages of devolution really stem from things like greater flexibility, the ability to respond more quickly to local conditions, the ability to potentially spur economic growth and effectively, you know, to be able to make the best choices um, at the local level. But obviously that comes with a lot of risks as well. Um, So potentially there's obviously a downside revenue risk and potentially a lot more complexity could be added to the system. So 
it's sort of quite a finely balanced, I think, if you get it right, potentially it's good. But, you know, the long term implications, if you get it wrong, could also be quite serious. I mean, if we're thinking specifically about the levelling up programme, I mean, how might devolved taxes play into that? The levelling up programme and, and the levelling up bill that have been published don't really talk in great detail about effectively tax and the role of tax in that. The bill itself has provisions in relation to a thing called the infrastructure levy, which is effectively a levy on development. But other than that, the, the actual bill itself is, is quite silent in terms of how tax might play into this agenda. So obviously, you know, we have devolved taxes already on stream in both Scotland and Wales. Um, but how I think they're going to play into the wider levelling up agenda, particularly potentially at, at local level and, and if you like, within regions of, say, England, I think at the moment is is still really not entirely clear how it's going to work. Why do you think they haven't talked about tax? Because tax is a very complicated and, and difficult subject in its own right. It, I mean, it, we have one of the most complicated tax systems in the world and it requires a lot of administration and systems to get it right. So you sort of straight away are into problems of, okay, how do you both design and administer taxes? And currently, effectively, most taxes are obviously done centrally with HM Revenue and Customs. So devolving that is actually incredibly problematic and time-consuming. Um, and obviously, some taxes lend themselves much more easily to effectively devolution than others. So, for instance, both in Wales and Scotland, we've seen devolution of what I might call basically land taxes. So, effectively, the UK equivalent of stamp duty land tax and landfill taxes. Um, so, it's much easier to, to actually sort of ring fence those, if you like, and treat those separately. But if you've got something like income tax, national insurance, VAT, it's much, much harder to do. But from a national perspective, I mean, thinking Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland, do you see further devolution as inevitable? I think what we're likely to see firstly is probably a, a bit of a period of, of reflection as to how the existing devolution of taxes is actually working out in practice. Um, but I think in the longer term, we we certainly probably will see further changes in the pipeline. Uh, and, and just going back to, for instance, the Northern Ireland Fiscal Commission report, that effectively we've already had on the stock since 2015, for example, the ability to devolve corporation tax rates to Northern Ireland, which has never actually been exercised. Um, but the latest Fiscal Commission report, I think, has, has brought it very much back onto the agenda. So I think what we will see is um, across you know, all the nations of the UK, a slow move, I think, towards potentially further devolution, but recognising that it takes time, they need to be designed, um, and there needs to be examples of, for instance, the block grant adjustments will also need to be thought through. So I think it, it's a sort of long-term game, if I can use the expression, which will take many years to actually work through the system. So what would more tax devolution mean for the central tax system then, Frank? 
I mean, I think in relation to the UK, we obviously have HMRC, HM Revenue and Customs, which is effectively the guardian of the UK tax system. And that role, I think, is certainly likely to continue for quite a, a long time in terms of devolved taxes generally, because we're likely to see that HMRC is still going to keep sort of central records, uh, for instance, in national insurance, which is currently um, effectively across the whole of the devolved nations. So I think there's going to be a, a role, a long-term role for HMRC in tax collection. What we might see, and I hope we will see though, is that developments in the devolved taxes might actually encourage us, if you like, a, a move towards more agile and responsive tax system that's more accountable to local needs and that that will feed back into the centre and HMRC and, and make them more responsive to, if you like, taxpayer needs. So I think it potentially is a good thing and will encourage um, HMRC to you know, develop and improve its tax systems. I and mean, as you say, that sounds positive. I and mean, I'm wondering whether in your mind you have any specific tax changes you think we're actually likely to see in the foreseeable future in with regard to levelling up. As I mentioned, um, for instance, we could see further devolved taxes coming on stream, particularly in relation to, say, Northern Ireland, um, following the latest Fiscal Commission report, where, for example, as well, the UK is looking to increase its corporation tax rate to 25%, which I think will renew calls to, to review whether we should devolve corporation tax to Northern Ireland, given that Currently, the Republic of Ireland only has a 12.5% rate of corporation tax. So I think that's all going to come back onto the agenda. And I think we could also see now that the UK is no longer in the EU, potentially, for instance, VAT was always very much an EU tax. Um, Now, obviously, it's a UK tax. And we could see now much more scope, I think, to consider regional developments, if you like, and possibly even rates um, of VAT. So I think that could be quite an interesting area. And we're also likely to see, I think, further devolution of probably some niche taxes like air passenger duty as well, um, which is certainly on the stocks. So I think there's going to be um, quite a lot of developments in this area over a number of years. But I think, you know, it's a long term any sort of sense of the time frame of when this might actually start happening? Well, we're already been into devolution of taxes, really, for almost 20 years. It started back in 1998. So it's already been continuing for many years. But my guess is um, we could see these further developments, for example, with Northern Ireland, if they can agree the funding of it. I think we could see that quite quickly. Um, so maybe, you know, just in a year or two's time. So I, th- I think we're likely to see probably developments certainly over the lifetime of this parliament and probably, I guess, further changes coming in the parliament after that. Frank, thank you so much. Really, really helpful insights. Thank you very much, Philippa. My pleasure. That's it for today. Many thanks to our guests, Ed Humpherson and Frank Haskew. And thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do rate, review and share it. We'll be back later in the month. Join us then. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you want to hear more from ICAEW, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. 